Hello, you're listening to Death by Adaptation podcast, all about. Um, I've, I've reset my brain into going into my podcast intro. This is the <laughs> podcast where we talk about a book and a film, and we compare the two, we contrast, we, we communicate the message of a book and a film towards each other, and hopefully to you as well. And if you like that sort of thing, Death by Adaptation is your place. Before we even get into introducing who's hosting and who's here, I'm Ewan Glitter, by the way. But you can go and subscribe to us, go and listen, give us the five-star ratings. I've never said any of these words before because I'm not a sellout, but then I remember I worked for Daily Star. So anyway, go and give us the five stars. Get us, <laughs> get us shared on your social media as well. That's still around. You know, Twitter's still a thing at the yeah. time of recording. Um, but no, give us a like, give us a follow, give us a share, give us a give us a spread. Because um, this is the either the penultimate or the last episode of the year. I don't an ultimate which, one, yeah. An ultimate episode. And that voice you just heard there is the wonderful Niccolo Grasso, who usually hosts, but because it's music-oriented, this episode, we've decided to throw me in the hot seat because I'm resident music man, you and Gledo. Yes. Um, how are you? You doing well? Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy to be here talking about music with an expert. I always feel like, you know, <laughs> when it's about cinema and, and stuff, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can I can hold my own, but then when it's when it's time for music talk, I'm like, yeah, no, I'm I'm out of my depth. I need the extra support. I need, I need to be taken care of. I'm a little baby just lost yeah. on the shores. It's like I don't know where to go. And you're the shining when... light. You're a beacon in the darkness. <laughs> when you said expert there, I genuinely thought someone else was joining us. <laughs> um, but no, I, I am the resident expert. I felt myself drift more and more to music over the past year, and that's nothing to do with the financial benefits of doing so and writing about it. But I have done it nonetheless. <laughs> Um, and today, of course, we are talking about two very distinct works, two very, very big works for the people that like his work, which is the D.A. Penbecker documentary, Don't Look Back, and Bob Dylan's, you can't see I'm doing air quotes, but autobiography, um, Chronicles Volume 1. They've started calling you an anarchist. Ooh. Papers, <laughs> that's the word now. Anarchist. <laughs> Yeah. You're kidding. What papers did you oh, see there? Oh, two or three. Today, anarchist. yeah. Just because you don't offer any solution. Kidding. <laughs> Chris. Anarchist. Yeah. Give me a cigarette. Give the anarchist a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> anarchist. Oh. Singer such as I. <laughs> I was a little surprised to see it myself, but there you go. It probably took them a while, man, to think of that name. Anarch- no, they couldn't say communist. Well, did they say that yesterday? Well, uh, the communists aren't in this Communists, uh, you know, oh. in England, communists really aren't, aren't you know. Oh, it's cool to be. Yeah. I don't think it's cool to be an anarchist, though. It's cool to be. <laughs> no. I'm <laughs> sure. Remember, it's not. It's, I don't think it is. <laughs> how, how do we even introduce this pairing? Because it, it's quite... You know, on the surface, it's just a book and a film. It's it's a documentary on Bob Dylan's tour of the UK, and then the book is just sort of inserts from parts of his life that he was interested in writing about. That is, on the surface, quite easy. But then you remember it's Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan's a to to the fans' credit who admire him and seek him out as a deity of belief. He is very Oof. complex. He's there is more lore to Bob Dylan than there are some fiction novels. <laughs> um, so I suppose, you know. The the sort of respect and the integrity that surrounds his image, it's huge. You see parts of that in the book and parts of that in the film. We will mm. begin with 
a comparison briefly of both because it helps us sort of shimmy our way into talking about the book. The last time we did a music episode was Jarvis Cocker. And I remember at the time we ended that and thought, there's no real way of knowing more about him as a person, but there is a way of knowing more about him as the artist through the book and the film. Mm-hmm. Do you know any more? Firstly, do you know any anything about Bob Dylan before entering into this? And now that you've watched the film and read the book, do you feel like you know any more about Bob Dylan? I, I mean, I don't know if I should, should share this with, with the listening public and with you. I don't know if it's considered something to be shameful of. But I think the first time I was actually aware of who Bob Dylan was, <laughs> was, with the, was with Zack Snyder's Watchmen. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> because it opens up, you know, there's great opening scene and then it's just the intro montage with the times they are changing. I was like, this is a pretty amazing song. I'm loving it. And just yeah. reading up reviews when I was younger of the film circa let's say 2011 2012 when I watched it everyone was mentioning like oh yeah the best scene in the movie comes very early on this song by Bob Dylan I was like oh yeah Bob Dylan this lad I've I've heard that name many times I probably heard other songs but it's just it just never really I never really focused too much on him but after watching (laughs) all things uh, I ended up becoming kind of a fan a more more mainstream fan like I've never been one to listen to an entire record up until very recently in preparation for this podcast but you know I've enjoyed quite a few of his songs Um, I would say probably my favorite there are quite a a few actually that I that I love that I listen to many many times over but one of my favorites uh it is popular but still i i love don't think twice one of his earliest ones but it's so beautiful so effective um i tried using it in a short film when i was in uni uh, the, the the my professor told me it was too obvious and too well known a song to use i was like ah shit <laughs> okay <laughs> and i had to go for something else um but yeah so i i, I wasn't particularly well versed into bob dylan outside of the myth of the man which yeah. is something that's so unique. I, I mean, we've, we've talked about Jarvis Cocker. I've been on your podcast talking about the Beatles. Like, we're talking about very, very famous people, especially the Beatles, like probably the most famous band of all time. But there's no real myths behind them. There's always a clear sense of, you know, these are the singers and, and artists and players and they, they just make the music and they may be beloved, they may be legendary, but they're not, not mythological. Bob Dylan is a mythological figure. And I think because he reinvented himself so, so many times, I, I found myself reading this book, especially Chronicles Volume 1, thinking like, wow, this is so unlike anything I've read. And it all makes sense in its own nonsensical way. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a book. It is. It's quite a book. And I, I suppose that's the great benefit of it, isn't it? It's it's a very broad book, shall we say. Mm. It's very unlike the typical autobiographical piece, which is why I did air quotes for a listening <laughs> audience. Um, because this, to some degree, is a work of fiction. It is fictional in the sense of mystery it's it's a fiction in the sense of there isn't something quite right with some of the placements Mm -hmm. not that it's noticeable you could say that this is an autobiography to the most passing of fan and they would say yeah sure it is there are people that doubt the integrity of it as an autobiographical piece but we will get to that 
Um, what I do want to ask, because uh, I'm glad you mentioned using Don't Think Twice in a, um, in a student film, because the one time, I don't know if you know this, but when, when I did media studies as an A-level, I actually had to make a short film. So I did I have, not know this. I have made a, I made a trailer for a comedy film called Gangster. Oh. Um, it is buried deep, deep <laughs> away. I have a copy of it, but it is buried so far down uh, in the files on my computer. It's like underneath all the article images and all the PDF files I have of all my work, just crushed wow. down. And for that one, I used Thin Lizzy's Jailbreak song, mm. uh, Boys Are Back in Town, because of course I did. But it reminded <laughs> me of sort of the integrity of musicianship in film. And we will focus up in a moment, but it's it's one of the rare artists that I can think of where you don't really hear their music much in film. I always think of the Beatles as a good example. The only time I've heard them in a film is uh, while my guitar gently weeps in with Nil and I towards the end, and that's just a brief segment. Mm. Obviously, yesterday kind of crushed that thanks to Danny yeah. Boyle's one. But Bob Dylan's a very mysterious artist. I think you touched upon that well. Where it's we don't really know about him. And I think that's a very conscious effort. It's a very, very nourished, integral part of his music is that nobody really knows much about him. And even then he offers personal details in Chronicles. They're written in such a way that it doesn't feel real. And I expect no less from someone that won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Mm-hmm. Um, an incredible stat. Um I could only wish to do so, but you don't do that when you write about farmers using lasers to stop birds eating their crop. Well, you never know. know. Give it time, give it time. Bullets is in the post, I imagine, (laughs) yeah. Um, No, but I think part of that as well, part of that image and part of that necessity that the fans like about him is the very open way he talks about the creative process, especially in the All Mercy chapter, which is very telling of a mental state that is, I don't want to be here, I don't want to make music. Mm -hmm. And suddenly like that, there is a click. And I want to put it this question to you as someone that is a creative and that is someone that is working in creative industries. What did that chapter do for you? Was was there a, a sense of hurt or help that sort of comes from that? You know, it's it's difficult to see. A, I mean, obviously, it's quite a popular narrative now that, that oh, the creative in need of focus and help. And then they get it through some sort of intervention whether or not they heard it in a jazz club, as Bob Dylan says he does, or if they're walking down the street and they just observe something. How how does that reflect? How does that reflect not only on yourself, but on Bob Dylan as an artist? It's, it's very raw and honest in a way that's not necessarily truthful. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> but in a way, it doesn't really matter. I kind of like that, you know, Bob Dylan kind of loves to... I don't even know how to really put it honestly, because it's such a such a fascinating individual, it's such an interesting topic and a great question. But Bob Dylan constantly manages like he seems to hate the spotlight. That's that's how it seems. Like reading this book, like it seems like he he's not someone who necessarily plays because he loves to do that, but he plays because he has to. It's almost like a physical need. It's almost like he has to eat, he has to breathe, and he has to play music. That's what he does. Doesn't necessarily seem to be loving it per se, even though deep down we all know he is. I mean, come on. Um, but you get to the chapter of Oh Mercy, and it really is this like kind of meandering trip through, you know, all of his dreams and like, uh, but basically being burnt out on work and on singing. It's like we're recording this album 
I'm not really feeling it. I'm not feeling the lyrics. We are spending like two days trying to record one track when usually it would take like six hours. Like all of that just adds on itself more and more and more. And, and I'm reading it, I'm like, man, it, it's unusual for an artist to put themselves in out, out there in this way. And even though, like, I, I think the, the fact that this was set, it actually took place, I mean, in New Orleans, which is also this magical place, this magical city. It manages to create this snapshot of 1989's New Orleans that's, you know, this bustling city for, for musicians and jazz artists and outcasts a little bit. And he seems to belong to it. And he's just loving it and he's fitting in. I think the moment when he just... I think it's a bit long in general, that chapter. It's probably the longest, maybe. Um, but it kind of fits with the overall, you know, uh, ennui, you could even say, that, he, that he's feeling and going through. But the moment when he just listens to that song in this jazzy bar and just gives him newfound energy. I've, I'm young. I'm still very young. But I've, I've had that feeling like twice so far in my life, creatively speaking. And it's so just reinvigorating. It's a second wind. And you, you feel like just reading this chapter, like the way he just goes back in the studio and recording a song and like, and then he's on, he's on his balcony and he just starts playing the guitar and he completely improvises an entire song. I've written this new lyrics in just one night. Like he's just exploding now again with newfound passion for music and for creating and for playing. Ah, oh, it's, it's deeply inspiring and, and very easy to relate to, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. It's, um, I mean, speaking personally on that, it's, I mean, you'll know better than anybody the sort of rises and falls I have with sort of burning out and <laughs> how much I do. You and, and me both, man. <laughs> you know, man. It's, um, but it, it, I think it's very recently um, that I've sort of hit this creative slaughter. Mm-hmm. I'm barreling through everything as fast as I can because I'm just, something's clicked. And it was reading that Bob Dylan book that I was like, oh yeah, that, that happened to me recently. I don't know what set it off. I think the past two times I've had that feeling, which, you know, is I, I've only had that feeling twice, and it's both times been this year. Both of them have not come from a place of anguish, but have actually come from somewhere of real anger, mm-hmm. real, not annoyance, but like genuine, not rage, but I think a part of me is annoyed at myself for not doing as much as I should and that pushes me further and further and further so to see that that is not a, an unusual thing, to see that that was something that Bob Dylan would go through, to see that was something that creatives would go through like yourself is is rather reassuring because I thought I was just going insane I just thought I'd, I'd lost the plot um, but it's it's kind of like I mean for, for about two months after work, as soon as I finished work I would go and lie on my bed and that about four hours would pass. I'd have like a nap, and I I never nap. If anybody knew me at like uni or like just after it, they would know that I just I can't sleep through the day. Yeah. And now it's just like something I'm fighting against constantly. And it was one day when I was just lying on the bed, something clicked in my brain. It was like, well, this is a waste of time, isn't it? This is this isn't time you get back. And I think there's a part of that in in Dylan's work here that is real. Sort of, you've got to grasp the moment, and he does that. He goes back to his hotel. He goes and plays with the Grateful Dead. He, he does all this remarkable stuff, even after he's done all the remarkable work before. He could live off of that legacy and just tour and continue. There is a fundamental creativity 
that isn't extinguished throughout. Having said that, I do want to bring up a quote from a, a Bob Dylan biographer called Clinton Halen, okay. who alleges that he, I mean, apparently he knows Dylan better than himself, because he's alleged <laughs> that the, the big chapter on All Mercy is, and I quote, a work of fiction, end quote, and that it was inaccurate. Um, now, to, to a degree of it being inspiring, I, I do think there is a, a little bit of harm done to that if it's not true. We don't know if it's true. This is one word against another. What do you think it does in the sense of making the piece entertaining? Is is that sacrifice necessary? You you can have that sacrifice. It's kind of like you can have your cake and eat it. It's it's something that I was wondering, and that I often wonder whenever it comes to nonfiction in general, even movies, even documentaries. You know, um, and I always think back to, to to one of my idols, the good Werner Herzog who oftentimes makes incredibly cinematic documentaries. And he completely embraces the, you know, the stagey aspect of putting on a documentary to the point of, like, you know, actually directing people to do things that are just incorrect, knowingly so, but it looks better for the camera. You know, it's, it's great. You know, we're in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, just get close to the ice and you can hear the seal wailing in the distance. It's like, you're, you can hear jack shit. You're on top of like five meters of thick ice, but it works great in the moment. And I think the same applies to this autobiography or at least especially to the to the Old Mercy chapter, which seems, seems to be kind of the outlier in that sense. Um, I don't know how intentional that was from Dylan's perspective, like how much he just sat down and kind of planned how to structure it to be more engaging, almost like a free act structure, almost like a short story in and of itself. Um, but he manages to make it very entertaining, again, very relatable. It has these ups and downs, highs and lows that lend themselves to, to, to storytelling. I think it's for the better, honestly. It doesn't bother me that much. I think anyone that's just looking for downright truth in those things will always end up being disappointed. I think the worst non-fiction works are the ones that are slaves to reality and truth because it's dull. Real life is not that entertaining. We we see it and live it as exciting because we are the protagonists of our stories, but everyone else is boring. Instead here, if you have Bob Dylan just having weird discussions with a Chinese man and uh, losing himself in in the streets of New Orleans. That's that's a magical quality that that that's just beautiful to go through. Um, how did you feel about all of this? I think, I mean, just just from what you've said there and what, what we've sort of spoken about with the whole impact it has on the creative process, it's a very, I don't know, I think it, it doesn't remove anything for me because at the end of the day it's entertaining and I find that I'm moved by entertaining stuff. On the other hand, there is sort of a a, a, a glimmer of this is just too perfect. This is just mm. too systematic for it to actually be the whole truth. There, There is, you know, there, there is that immediate change, the sort of the adrenaline of, oh, I need to get back and do something. I need a change. On the other hand, it, you know, it it can't have been that easy, you know? It can't. I, I don't mean to doubt one of the greatest musicians of all time, but I do, I do doubt it a little bit. Um, <laughs> But I suppose it, that that sort of fictional component is is a quite quite a nice change of pace, really, from from what we've seen in autobiographies countless times over. 
Um, I used to b- before I, before we did this podcast, I would not read, and I've read almost a hundred books this year. That's a nice change of pace. Thank clap, you. Clap, clap. I mean, you just hit your Goodreads goal the day, didn't you? Yes, um, I did. Eighty yeah. books. Yeah, fantastic. Which is which is shocking again. Like that's fantastic. Yeah. I've I mean, I'm I'm like scraping the barrel of stuff. I'm reading the Power of Habit currently, which is actually quite good, but oh. it's. It's just to have a break from fiction, really. But before mm-hmm. I started reading properly, like actually engaging in texts that were worth my time, I would read nothing but comedians' autobiographies. <laughs> that would be it. And that really does shed some light on the whole perspective of autobiographies, is that a, a bulk of them are really boring. A mm. bulk of them are just horribly dull. Just a list of experiences and a list of downfalls, and they're not that interesting because either the person isn't interesting or there's not enough to warrant an autobiography. Bob Dylan is someone that has lived a life that is worth an autobiography, but still he feels the need to entertain. And I think that's the big, fundamental, very important change for Chronicles, and it's why I kind of like it so much, is that this is, if even if it is a work of fiction, the fundamentals, the message is, is intact. That hasn't changed. What what Dylan wants to talk about isn't changed by the perspective of, well, this didn't happen or that didn't happen. And just considering the sort of usual format of an autobiography, the very much, oh, I was born here, then I went to work here, and then I died here. What does it do for you, this narrative style? It's it's very in the moment. It's very personal. It's, it's I mean, I say that as if it's not common for an autobiography, but it's, <laughs> it's rare that you have an emotion attached to memories that are very lived in and throughout an autobiographer you know those people have lived it they've moved on they're they're essentially retreading their old moments because that's what sells with bob dylan there is an entertainment value there that is unexplained and it's i don't know what what do you think of that change of pace it's it's a very odd one yes it's refreshingly non-linear and even then it needs non-linearity there's there's a lot of elements that I don't know how cheeky they are, <laughs> but knowing the character, uh, probably they're very much intended to be so, because it starts off like it doesn't start off with, with the beginning. It's just kind of like him in New York in 1961, I believe, and then it goes forward in time, and then further forward, like skipping completely most of the late 60s and 70s to go to 1989, only in the final chapter to go back to his origins and beginnings. It feels like he's trying to demythologize himself to demystify what people think of Bob Dylan, because there's a lot of myths, there's a lot of of, uh, urban legends, essentially, about him. And he basically opens up kind of like, this is like a, no, I wasn't like living on the tracks or whatever bullshit you've read. I wasn't, you know, basically a homeless kid when I was six. But then the the, the book evolves in a way that makes you go like, oh, these stories might be bullshit, you know. <laughs> you know, there's like an encounter with gorgeous George that's like he gave me strength because he told me it's like I'm stop playing kid, something like that to that effect. And and you're reading it, it's like it might be true, it's plausible, but also. It's probably just more crap from from Bobby D, but it's <laughs> but it's lovely. It works again. Um, I think a mystery is always more interesting than the truth, uh, and especially yeah. with someone like Bob Dylan, he's built such a such a career on just the mystique behind this figure that if he actually yeah. went out there and said exclusively the truth from his point of view, I mean, it might still work probably, but. 
but but to an extent because you know that's the appeal of him. He's 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 a chameleon, and you feel that in this book. And 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 they love that he's like, nah 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 nah. You, you want to know about this this year, the making of this album? F- fucking cares. Like those are the biggest ones. You already listen to them. Let's just talk about three albums that no one gives a shit about, basically. <laughs> so I'm just reading it and I'm like, I don't know this song. Let me listen to that. I don't know this song either. Let me listen to that. It got to a point where, like, with the old mercy part, I was just like, okay, I'm gonna stop it here. Listen to the whole album so I have more context for this chapter because otherwise, I don't know where where this is going to end up. So yes, I I particularly liked it. Uh, probably a bit messy. Like I I went into this not knowing much about Bobby Dylan. You were way more familiar with his life story, I guess, right? So was it a bit easier to follow from the get go? Or not? yes, I think definitely in the sense of I mean, obviously the the, the Bob Dylan reviews I do. Partly because I really am interested in time by his work, mm. but partly because I know it, it fares well and the, the whole <laughs> rat race is due to the you know, view, viewships. Good old SEO. Um, but something like, uh, specifically the All Mercy chapter for me is really interesting because that's a period where Bob Dylan, one, wasn't particularly popular and two, wasn't particularly good. He'd mm. made three albums before that that had just flumped. They were failed. They were awful. I don't know how well that comment will go down in the Bob Dylan community, <laughs> but it's true. And All Mercy was what a lot of people perceive as his the beginnings of his comeback, because he did that. All Mercy is a magnificent album. It's really quite wonderful. It's probably the best work he'd done since the, the mid-70s. So a 15-year gap of like some pretty on-and-off material. Hmm. And it was a return to form, essentially. It's people, people say that'll be his big, grand return. And then the album he followed it up with is awful under the red sky. But it's it's a very key moment for him because I think fictional or not, there is a truth to his feelings in that moment. There is a truth to how he feels throughout the book, to the early days of recording, where it's kind of you know, when he gets the record deal and he's kind of he just says, Oh, thanks very much, but on the inside his heart's pumping, he's racing, he's excited. There's definitely that feeling with Dylan, you know, you you get the sense that he's not you know, I, I think a lot of it is about perspective. It's the perspective of who Dylan is and how much he's accomplished. Bob Dylan's accomplished a hell of a lot, you know. That's a lengthy career. To to do that much is just impressive. There's few artists that like him, yeah. both quality and quantity. The issue is that the, the fans have a perception of him as being like this massive mystery, this, this thing to unravel that they need to know. And what I like so much about Chronicles, and especially the fictional aspects of it, it's a rejection of what an autobiography should be, and rightly so, because there is so much more to a piece when you don't really get what they mean or what they're trying to do. All Mercy, for instance, is a wonderful period because it does tie up a couple of loose ends and it's it's a very interesting segment, but as far as its accuracy, I don't really mind. I don't really... I'm not too fussed, you know? It's it's an entertaining little side piece to yeah. what is a, a very entertaining period um but it definitely helps to have more detail about him if you're going in i mean like i'm i'm mm. one of the lucky people that i can't believe i'm not bright about this yet but <laughs> i did get to see him live this year uh in in my favorite place on earth hull um he was wonderful like really really good and i'm not just saying that because i forked out 100 quid on a ticket but because he was actually very good Eleven um, kicking at eighty-one years old, basically. The man can shimmy. Um, he's 
that that is a consistency and a quality that few artists have. Not just that age, but that long ago. You know, he, his first album was okay. His, his self-titled one is just some folky tunes to sort of test the waters. But then from there, it's no no artist I can think of has had such a long stretch of real classics. And he doesn't really talk about those. He talks about the end of that period with New Morning. He talks about the aftershock of it with Oh Mercy when his popularity was probably at an all-time low. Yeah. It's He's charting the moments that he wants to re-experience. And I think there's a lot of... I've got a lot of respect for any artist that can do that with an autobiography where it's not talking about the hits. It's it's the counter to LCD Sound System who's, you know, the documentary Shut Up and Play the Hits is give the audience what they want. Bob Dylan is very much a person of give give the soul what it wants because the mm-hmm. soul is what will engage the audience. That, that gig he did in Hull, there was no like a Rolling Stone. There was no Tambourine Man. There was nothing of that calibre. But for the people that have followed Bob Dylan for that long, they've got to understand that it's just, you know, he's there to tour a new album. Most people are there to tour a new album. So to actually reject what people are asking to hear, you know, oh yeah, a couple from the new album, get some classics on for the encore. No, no. It's it's a wonderful rejection of what makes music popular. And I, I cannot respect that more. And I think they do it in such an entertaining way with Chronicles. is marvellous. But Chronicles is a very reflective piece. And the documentary from D.A. Penbecker, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. To be honest, I, I didn't check. I'm going off of my memory alone. Um, <laughs> it sounds, sounds about right, right, yeah. It sounds about right, yeah. It's that finds Dylan at the time period that he doesn't talk about in his book, which is, I think, I believe it's 64, 65, when he was touring England. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, first off, what what do you think of the document just as a whole as a, as a piece of entertainment as a piece of art what 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 were your thoughts love it amazing amazing stuff i loved don't look back um i we had this exact conversation back when we did the episode on pulp we were like yeah. this this is such an interesting subject and the documentary is the most uh, I want to say banal because at the end of the day, like the more okay, the more interesting part of the pop documentary was the fans, was the people of the city where pop grew up in, being interviewed, talking about the legacy and the, the influence of this band on them. Because everything with the band, there's just so 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 little of it, so little of it is interesting or fun, which is a disappointment. Don't look back; is the full package. Yes. You get not only a great perspective from fans, general public, journalists, on the way that they look at Bob Dylan, but you also get to become a bit more intimate with him and his entourage during his stay in England and, and the whole tour without losing the mystique of Bob Dylan. And, and it humanizes him so much, so, so much, in a way that... I don't know, I've, I've seen very few music documentaries ever accomplish. I thought it was spectacularly well done. Like, it's an hour and 40 minutes long, 96 minutes long, whatever. Like, it, oof, man, just flies completely quickly. Um, it balances out, you know, long sections of just talking with concert scenes. There is a rhythm to the way these musical moments are assembled as well that gives you a sense of the passage of time and of how boring it must be as well. 
like by the sixth time you hear the times they are changing it's like shit man <laughs> you know that's what every, it's, it's like what you were saying earlier like that's what everyone wants to hear and he has to give it to them because back then he was kind of forced to do it it was the new big hit song from him so you know i i, I there's a lot in here to to unpack and i thought it was yeah a, a magnificent experience it is it is a magnificent experience and it's and I think for me personally as well, it's kind of like the, the tour in England, obviously I'm from England, unfortunately. <laughs> so it's kind of got a nice connection to me where it's, he's played venues that I've been to now. Oh, you know, nice. The one, in, the one in Newcastle, for instance, like he played St. James's Park, which is the football stadium for Newcastle United, up the Magpies, etc. Um, He played places that I've been to that are kind of just in the background of my everyday life, which is a weird feeling. And I get that <laughs> feeling with very few musicians. It's kind of like, oh, Bob, Bob Dylan's been there strange that one um and it's just very few artists have that effect on me i mean we had that experience a couple of times in venice at the film festival mm. um very stoic for most of it and then i see steve buscemi and melt like an ice lolly in the sun um <laughs> takes very little it does take very i mean it takes randall from monsters inc to to, to melt my heart um as far as far as <laughs> as far as Bob Dylan goes, I absolutely adore this documentary. I'm I think this is primarily one of the reasons I recommended we do this podcast episode is to essentially make you watch this film. Thank um, you so much. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> it's not a problem. I got it on it was one of the first criterions I ever bought. Oh, I, nice. bought. I got it for Christmas. I got that and Night of the Living Dead, which is a wonderful pairing. Back to back is delightful. Wow. Um for a lot of reasons, this documentary is essentially the quintessential and only documentary that really gets Dylan at this period in time. Because mm-hmm. the cameras are following him. He hadn't yet developed an aversion to the press. Well, he has, but I mean, that's shown in the documentary. But quite, quite yeah. brilliantly. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I have to speak on this because I'm a journalist, but I completely agree with his stance on the press. Just the lack of care for interviews, the I I love interviewing artists and filmmakers and wrestlers and all these people I admire and have respect for. There is nothing I respect more than just a blunt and blanker refusal to speak to anyone. <laughs> um, it's an iconic moment right there. The entire sequence. That, it's a wonderful sequence because it does highlight kind of the issues that Bob Dylan would often face. And I think that's one of the just to throw it back to when we were talking about sort of the mystical image that surrounds Bob Dylan, that is one of the the key things for him is that the press got bored of him because they wouldn't be able to speak to him. They didn't have access. <laughs> they had the same access that the people reading the paper would have. And the people reading it probably knew more than the people writing it. Um, I do love, though, those little throwaway clips where there's the guy in the phone booth essentially writing his review on the phone and talking it over. It's just a very nice time capsule of something I I will never experience because we all have phones that can type these days. But there was a a forbidden nostalgia that I don't have for that, you know, seeing the structure of it. It reminded me of Roger Ebert when he would, mm. you know, phone in his reviews from Cannes. Um, as far as the documentary goes in showing Bob Dylan, it's a very, very integral piece to understanding not just his motives, but his entourage at the time. You can see Joan Byers, you can see Allen Ginsberg. The Queen! There's the Queen! The queen. You, you say that, but Marianne Faithful's there, who's the real, real surprise. 
Um, there are people in there that just kind of show up and aren't really credited. They're just in the background. People like John Mayle. Um, they can all be spotted. Do you think that gives this documentary, obviously it's made off the time, it's made in the mid-60s, but do you mm. think the sightings of people like Joan Byers, like like Marianne Faithful, does that give it a a presence that would not be felt in something like Martin Scorsese's No Direction Home, for instance, or the Rolling Thunder Review, which is looking back on footage of the time, there's a perspective change where it's you can look back or you don't look back. There we go. Got hey. that one in. No, but seriously, it's <laughs> um I throw myself off with that pun. Pennebaker has the very, very delicate beauty of actually being there in the morning and making something out of that. Everybody else is having to reflect on it and look back. Do you think that perspective change is the key to don't look back? Yes, there's always a sense of immediacy when you're the one actually recording basically history happening and not knowing that it's going to become historical. Like I, I didn't even realize there's one moment that I've seen many times over the years when people talk about, you know, the beginning of fandom and the obsession with celebrities and stuff. I've seen that clip of the young girls, which is like three or four girls waiting outside of the hotel where Bob Dylan is staying, just kind of like adoringly waiting for him. Oh, is that the window? No, oh, for the Oh, Bob, Bob, oh, I'm so shy. I looked at me. Like, it's so cute. It's so innocent in a way. But, but but you can see just the birth of something terrible. And even in the yes. same documentary, you see how it starts off the first few days. It's just standing in, standing in the hotel and there's just barely anyone outside waiting for him because it is a, not a niche sensation, but not that many people know he's there. And after a couple concerts, there are people literally clinging to his car as he's leaving the venue. It's it's crazy. It's disturbing. And, and the best thing about it is that, you know, Panabaker is just shooting all of this, just kind of like going and rolling with the punches. Um, it's I've not been able. I wanted to to try and watch at least one of the Scorsese documentaries because I've not seen them yet. I didn't manage to to find the time, but I will see them in the future. They're very long. They're very long. That's why I was They're like, very long. Oh, yeah, this is on Netflix. Fuck, over three hours. No, Marty, I love you, but please, <laughs> <laughs> we can think of people's time. Um, but still, it, 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 I, I agree with what you're saying. Like, it is a completely different perspective. I've seen other documentaries that are, you know, look, the bands and the artists looking back on their career or specific times. Yeah. Sure, it, it's, it's interesting, but I, I don't know if those documentaries would have moments like John Baez playing the guitar and singing and Bob Dylan using a typewriter typing at the rhythm of the song i was just watching it i was like oh i can watch like half an hour of this <laughs> like don't cut don't cut just keep <laughs> it going and it goes on for a good like five minutes i think that entire sequence yeah. like it's filled with moments that probably back then it was more of like you know uh you see an exclusive look at celebrities what they do behind doors even though these celebrities are um, anti-cultural, you know, going against the grain and against the, and breaking the mold, people like Baez, like Dylan. But now it feels even more like the time capsule and, and like, not even just time capsule, but I think in general, just the power of of the moving image, more so than just photography, is that it, it renders people and moments immortal. And to know that 
that moment and so many other in this documentary will not be lost. Well, hopefully, will not be lost by time. It's magical. It's it's absolutely magical. Something so genuine, so spontaneous. Uh, I can honestly see someone. Like I don't know if Scorsese ever tackles this period, whatever. But like someone making a documentary on Bob Dylan, so many of those little touches and those little moments would probably be like, ah, I wouldn't really need it to move the story forward to look at him, it's the artist and the person, whatever voiceover on top of it. No, no, no. I, yeah, I, great direction, honestly. Yeah. I suppose the the big similarity is that you know, Chronicles is sort of very unique. It's very fluid. It's very ambiguous at times, mm. and. Even with Pennebeck, he's just rolling with the punches. There is a even though Dylan is reflecting in his book and Pennebeck is in the moment, there is a, a symmetry in the sense that they're quite unique. They're quite unlike anything that we've seen in that particular genre. You know, you think of all the musical biopics, for instance. I mean, we'll have to go down that rabbit hole briefly because we did the same for autobiographies. The amount of musical biographies that have talking heads of vaguely famous people that kind of were around for the band or are just on hand to talk about them is really just grating. It's terrible. Now, the benefit that Martin Scorsese has is that Bob Dylan actually agreed to do an interview for the Rolling Thunder Review, which he adds as little as you'd expect for a man whose reputation is mysterious. (laughs) So... Uh, it's it's a fact of the matter is that like you said you put it brilliantly he's rolling with the punches there is no way of knowing where it's going and I think that's where the best of documentaries come I think it's where the best of literature comes from the 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 amount of success stories that have come through sheer grit and determination that look like they're going to fail you know one of my favorite books is all the president's men never at any point in that book until the very final article is submitted on the Nixon scandal and Watergate, do you think that it could have happened? To experience that at the time is to experience something like Don't Look Back. It's the revelation of a musical artist growing in front of you. It's it's a time capsule piece, but in all the right ways. And at times this feels like a blur of, like you said, when we started discussing this, the musical numbers, you know, he does times there are change in the likes and you know there's nice concert footage there's nice bits and pieces how how does that feel to witness there there is that blur of concert and artist which is what we saw in years and years later with Pulp's documentary yeah. um do you, I, I assume it fares better here um <laughs> Does just it, a little do you think bit. <laughs> just a tiny a smidge not not the slander florian habitch but um how how do you think that sort of splicing that editing process of behind the scenes, he's clacking away on a typewriter with John Byers on guitar, to actually being on the stage, being mobbed by the fans? How what what does that cohesion do for the for the documentary itself? It feels less like glorifying the the concert aspect of of of, of such a documentary, which you always have. You know, there are so many of these that are just 15, 20 minutes of just raw footage of someone singing on stage and whatever like i i like concert films they're some that i love but i do like the extra you know i I like how everything balances out in here so it doesn't make any section particularly tiring but especially the concerts 
again, rolling with the punches, unpredictability. There's this one concert where he goes to where the microphone is not working as soon as he starts singing. It's like, ah, shit. <laughs> it, it, it almost lulls you into this sense of safety because, you know, ah, he's going to another concert now. He's going to start with times they are changing and whatnot. And, and instead, nope. There's like a little problem. This thing, the wrench stopping everything. Ah, fuck. <laughs> so it keeps it fresh, it keeps it interesting and you're always, pretty much always seeing it from behind the scenes and even the moments where you are in the crowd it's a tripod shot lockdown camera from far away and it's just the one you don't have 15 to 20 like fancy shots the one on top and the one on the ground and the camera on stage so it, it makes it feel more intimate as well and there are those moments that are particularly daunting or just Bob Dylan kind of going like, ah, the lights are turned off? <laughs> okay, I cannot see the audience. Okay. And he just goes and sings to basically darkness. This pitch black emptiness. And you get the feeling of just how, well, I don't want to say scary per se, but you know, it ain't easy. It must not be easy to go out there, even if you're someone as carefree as Bob Dylan to just sing every time in front of hundreds if not thousands of people in some of these places and you cannot even see them but thankfully they applaud every two minutes so you know it's already you know they're there and alive and everything <laughs> that applause that they do after like every song that is something that has stayed that is something that still happens um i recognize this at that at that stage in your career it's nice to get applause but after getting applause for every single song <laughs> it must get a bit boring, you know? Probably, but yeah. I think it is the, the quintessential documentary piece. I can't think of many better. I can't think of many documentaries that are better in the sense of music. Mm. Um, I'll always It'll always remind me of LCD Sound System, again, to bring it up, that shouldn't play the hits, which is essentially the day before, the concert, the day after, which is spliced so nicely. It kind of feels a bit like Chronicles, where it's, you know, oh. James Murphy, the lead singer, sat around in his apartment the day after just recovering from what was a four-hour set in Madison Square Garden. You know, he's doing very routine, mundane things. He's walking his dog, he's having coffee, he's visiting offices now that it's all finished, and he's coming to terms with it. And to, to splice that in with a moment that ended his career for about six years, and then they got back together. But that, that's beside the point. <laughs> um, it's its a wonderful thing to experience and to see and to to get a peek behind the curtain of any artist is interesting. It's such a fundamentally flawed arena for directors, though, because a lot of them are stunned. They're, they're starstruck. It's like, oh, my God, I'm with Bob Dylan. What do I do? Just point the camera at him. Um, and th- there's a nice sort of, not amateurish feel, but there is a very intimate feeling to a lot of Pennebaker's work here, where it's... It's in the hotel before. You just sat around, they're talking. They're not really talking about anything, but <laughs> the discussion and the sort of the people involved in the discussion have such a high public persona. Mm-hmm. They have such a high regard in, in communities and rightly so for the work they've done. But I I wonder how much that affects the overall experience. I wonder how much that, you know, that legendary status given to the people of the 60s that new movement that came through the likes of Andy Warhol, Leonard Cohen, oh, that, yeah. that movement is integral, but I wonder how much of that respect will be lost in the next 10 to 20 years when 
my generation and your generation were the same generation. I don't know why I separated those. <laughs> we're not that old. Um, <laughs> not yet. I wonder how. I wonder if that reverence will be passed on to people that we listen to now that are kind of twenty years younger than Bob Dylan. People like Nick Cave, people like Jarvis Cocker, people like hmm. you know. Even I mean, it's it's mad to say it now, but in twenty years' time, this this will be the sort of anticipation people have for the likes of Taylor Swift, the likes of. Selena Gomez, the likes of Chris Pratt. These are people that are working popular work. Did you say Chris Pratt? I did. I did oh. say Chris Pratt. It's unfortunate, is, but it's Is it that Chris Pratt singer that I don't know of? Or is talking about No, I'm talking about Chris Pratt, Star the actor. I, I think this can be applied to acting, too. He's a great singer. He did that on Parks and Rec. That's true, <laughs> I guess. Johnny Karate slander on this podcast. <laughs> I would never... Um... Parks and Rec is good. It's very good. It is, it is. But there, there is a there is a sort of feeling there that that respect that is gone for Bob Dylan isn't something that's exclusive to his generation. There is the mm. next layer of artists to start respecting. Who that is, I don't know. I'd, I'd hazard guesses, but I oh, feel like that's me. rude. I, I, I think that's also... That's kind of the fun thing of looking back at documentaries like this, because now they're legends people like Bob Dylan and the Beatles and, I don't know, Rolling Stones and, and all those proper icons of, 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 of music and of multiple generations. But we were born with them being famous. Like, it's kind of the same thing as growing up now and probably having, you know, people like Timothy Chalamet, who, fun fact, uh, said that his favorite book that he read this year is Chronicles Volume 1. I was watching oh, interviews don't. with of no. Bones and all, and they asked him uh, favorite book this year. I was like, yeah, I reread Chronicles Volume One. I love that. It was like, don't shit, that's how this is. Because you know for a fact, and I know for a fact <laughs> that he has a vague resemblance to Bob Dylan in the sixties, and you know for a fact that if they do another biopic, hey. what kind of a biopic, then it's going to be him. You know, it's coming. He's probably just doing research now. Yeah, it's going to be two, after three Wonka, years. surely. After Wonka, they'd be like, yeah, look at that. Willy Wonka singing Bob Dylan, basically. You know, Horrifying. Um, but, but yeah, the jokes aside, you, 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 I, I, yeah, I agree. I, I don't know who's going to become a legend of this caliber in 10, 15 years, 15, 20, 30 years, um, like Bob Dylan, because we're just seeing them grow up now. Um but again, like, you know, means are different as well. Watching a concert yeah. back then was different from cons- watching a concert now and, uh, you know, moving around the world and all that. So, you know, the world has changed. The times were changing in 67 and they're still changing now in uh, 2022. <laughs> That's the thing. There's, there's a reverence to Bob Dylan that is usually reserved for the dead. Yes, yes. He, he always feels just like a very select few number of, of celebrities uh, and not even just celebrities but just icons you know yeah. I don't remember where I heard this conversation because I listen to too many podcasts now uh, maybe we had this conversation I honestly don't know but just Bob Dylan is the type of person that it, oh yes he was on an episode of Uncut Gems actually I just remember now I connected all the dots but like he is he symbolizes just the singer songwriter yes yeah. He's just, you know, he's someone you put on a t-shirt for normal people to buy. It's like I said earlier, like I was 12, 13. I knew who Bob Dylan was in a very generic way. 
it's someone that you know of, even if you haven't necessarily listened to any of his albums or actually cared about any of his songs. Yeah. It just transcends the medium in a way it that... It does, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a transcendence that has also managed to avoid the sort of commercialism of it. I think that is mm. because it's a generational thing. The commercialism of people like Miley Cyrus, who I'm not saying is a good or bad artist, I'm saying that their their output is... I know Miley Cyrus more for her presence in the real world, the Wrecking Ball video, rather than the yes. songs, the albums, the art that she makes, is that with, with Bob Dylan, you, if he was that famous now, there would absolutely be another degree of that. But I think because he's he's not a private person, but he's just so difficult to grasp because he's revealing all the right things. You can never get a mm-hmm. jigsaw assembly. And it's it's surreal. It really is. It's really amazing that he's managed such a lengthy career without actually having someone depict him, even himself. He's not sort of showcased who he is. I mean, the closest we've got is that I'm not there, which is delightful. Um, I was wondering what you thought of that, actually, because I did see you tweet about it. Yes, I love this. <laughs> this was a rewatch, actually, because I, I knew yeah. we were talking about... Um, we we're talking about Bob Dylan, and I thought, like, man, I know this is not an adaptation per se of, of a specific time or place with Bob Dylan, but again, it kind of goes back to what we talked about with Paul. And I think I said it at the end of the episode. I was like, you know, like one of my favorite musical biopics is "I'm Not There," and it's probably the most unconventional one I've watched, and I love it precisely for that. I love how Todd Haynes just kind of does what. Chronicles did in the sense of taking these different snapshots of Bob Dylan's life giving him a different name adding wildly just unique and original uh, fictional elements to each of them like you know a love interest that never existed like for instance like the Charlotte Gainsbourg character she's in it she's a French she's the French wife of Bob Dylan he's never been married to a French woman but she is connected, and things that happen in that storyline between her and Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger's Bob Dylan, uh, are connected to you know things that actually happened with that. And I like how there are all these different styles, cinematic styles. You know, um, we we didn't touch on it earlier, but actually, I think the second or third time I became more interested in Bob Dylan was after watching Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, the Sam Peckinpah movie, where he's actually acting in it. Uh, I don't know how you feel about his acting in the film. It's not the greatest. It's, 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 uh, it's there. It's, uh, it is there. Um, um, but it, it, it is a great film, and the soundtrack actually contributed to... I, I would say all of it. Definitely like 90% of it is just... He did, he did the bulk of it, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, um, horrifying it might be to learn this, but he has acted again in yeah. an actual film, Masked and Anonymous. Which is, you know, film. Okay. I've not seen it. It's not got the best review scale. Um, out of the two friends that I've seen rate it, one of them has given it one and a half stars, and the oh, other one has given it five stars. So okay. I really don't know what to think. Let's say divisive. Um, Let's call it divisive then. <laughs> I, I think collectively, though, the book, the documentary, and the film, it's uncovering the persona of Bob Dylan. I think that's the key difference, is that mm-hmm. this is a persona of an artist people put on stage names. Bob Dylan is a stage name. Richard Hawley is a stage name. The likes of most artists use stage names, you know. 
um, what it means for certain artists is different. It's different along the way. And I, I don't think anybody will know why Bob Dylan decided on Bob Dylan. I, I don't think anybody knows because it's it, it's always going to be a projection. Oh, what's Bob Dylan think of this? It's not even, that's not his name. It's not him. It's all, it's all smoke and mirrors. And I think that's wonderful that, especially now in an era where we can uncover even the greatest of shit posters. I remember when Drill on Twitter was uncovered and everybody collectively decided they just didn't care. <laughs> um, Bob Dylan has managed to come through unscathed, which is brilliant, which is phenomenal. And it lends itself to the integrity of his work, um, yeah. which is displayed quite well in Chronicles and in, um, what you call it? Don't Look Back? Don't Look Back. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Don't Look Back is an ironic title for a man that spent 300 pages looking back but we will let him off the hook we will allow it because it, it is high time we we answered the big question isn't it yes what what in your opinion nicholas is the best the, the best of the two is it the book written by bobby d himself in his mid-60s or is it the film which was made in the mid-60s I'll probably go with the film, with the documentary, Don't Look Back mm. with this. Mainly because okay. I, uh, it's more of a personal thing in that sense, but there were a couple stretches of um, Chronicles where it was kind of like, ah, ah, I don't know, <laughs> I'm losing focus, I'm, I'm yeah. losing attention. Um, it's it, it manages to make it very entertaining, the best he can. But I do still think that it's more geared towards someone who actually knows that much about him and cares to learn more about, you know, some of the ins and outs. Not, not not having, you know, grown up or even more recently listened to his albums, you do get to a point where it's just like, I don't know, 10, 15 straight pages through some chapters of just, we were recording this song and there's the bass, the sound, and then we just start thinking and we come back the second day and then I was on the on the balcony and started playing the guitar and we had this, it's like, okay, if I had context for it or if I was passionate about that song, it would hit much harder. So th that element kind of, you know, I don't know about the book. I really liked it, but it, it kept me from truly loving it. Meanwhile, the documentary, I loved, loved every second of it. Uh, one of the best documentaries I've seen this year might indeed be, like you said, the best music documentary because it's of its time. I'm super curious, actually, in watching Monterey Pop. Um, I know it's another documentary that Penna Baker made. I don't know if you've watched that one, Ewan, yet. I haven't, no, because I'm terrible for keeping track of things. It's too much to no, watch. No, that, that one does look pretty. There's too much, too much things. Uh, but yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to watch that concert film, but but yes, personally, I like to go with the documentary. How about you, man? Well, I will go the other end just for the sake of variance. I, I, <laughs> I do love the documentary. I love it dearly. I think it's probably the best criterion I own aside from true stories. Um, it's a wonderful documentary, oh. like stunning. Um, but I'll go with the book mainly for the reasons that you've just cited there. Is that <laughs> it, it's, it's a book for the people that want to know more about Dylan or have convinced themselves into wanting to know more about Dylan and actually just want a, a, a pretty decent quasi-autobiography mm -hmm. yeah. fiction type thing. <laughs> I've never stumbled over a word that badly before. That was something <laughs> else. Autobiographical. There we go. You can 
you can just edit it over, can't you? Yeah, no worries. Um, I can, I can. No, I think it's it, it's very good from the perspective of it's it's answered a lot of the questions that I had about periods that Dylan is kind of you know struggling with. I'd I'd always thought what's gone wrong at a period where his artistic output wasn't the best mm-hmm. because you can kind of chart Dylan from what he's experiencing. I think that big bulk of the sixties where he's just you know, there, there was times when he was doing two albums a year, and those two albums were like the, regarded as the greatest of all time. Sincerely, one of the workhorses of his generation. He's like me, but for music. <laughs> um, the seventies was a lot more laid back. It was a lot more experimental. It was interesting. It was still that same quality, but the cracks are beginning to show by the end of that century. You know, he's done three religious themed records, which isn't a bad thing. With a slow train coming, still very good. And there's something after that. He just stops. He stops making material like that. And I do think it comes back to a quote from Bob Dylan is that he could not write the same music he wrote when he was 27. Something just changes. Something clicks in your brain. Whether it's experience, whether it's endeavours that have you know, interested him elsewhere. It might be a lack of interest. Something changes and I think Chronicles does a really good job of adapting that. I think it does a really good job of charting his influences at the start of his career and moves it to what he was then doing. You know, he talks about touring with Tom Petty. He talks about having a meal with Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson. Name dropping, not for the sake of it, but to sort of chart where he's at musically. To have a meal with Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson is different company to touring with the Grateful Dead, which is by all means, allegedly, a very good live album. I've not listened to it yet. But I think the book does well to chart the behind-the-scenes almost. Fictional or not, it gives good perspective of a very strange period for Bob Dylan. Amen. Amen to that. Lovely stuff, isn't it? I suppose I should round it out with that outro we do. Um, <laughs> uh <laughs> Clutching at straws. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Go and give us a follow on Twitter uh, and uh, the other stuff. What Instagram? Doesn't remember the handles. Doesn't remember the handles. TikTok. Um, <laughs> you know, no. I know the handles. It's at Death Adaptation. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I have not just looked up there. Um, at Death Adaptation on on Twitter and if you want to give me a follow you can get me on Twitter as well at Ewanglado E W A N G L E A D O W. You get my letterbox there and then my letterbox has a link of all the lovely places I write for. Um you know, Newcastle World, Cult Following, Daily Star, Clapper, etc etc etc. I will not the bore quality you writing. The quality writing of a man that's about to have his third coffee of the day and rattle out a review of Metallica's new song. Woo-hoo. Wonderful. Um where where can the good people find you, Nicholas? They can find me at Nicholas Grasso ninety. <laughs> it's Nicky Grasso ninety seven on Twitter and Instagram. There's there's links to everything you know, Letterboxd, my Clapper reviews, my cult following reviews as well. I love having my link tree now. Um, YouTube videos, short films, everything that I do is on there. And of course, you know this episode is coming out mid December, penultimate episode of the year. If you want to hear me talk here, the good you and Gledo about a bit. Well, a contemporary of Bobby D, uh, the good and lovely John Baez. There's a new episode of his dropping oh, yes. of his podcast. Don't listen to this pod dropping in just three, four days, I believe. So go check it out. Follow his 
Twitter page so that you don't miss any of those lovely episodes if you're a musician or a fan of music in general. And stay tuned! Because Thanks. In two <laughs> Thanks weeks. for plugging that. I, I forgot course, about that. Of course. It's important. <laughs> Thanks for doing my stuff. job. <laughs> but also stay tuned because in two weeks' time, we're closing off the year. And as is tradition, we're talking about a Christmassy themed movie. We're actually doing kind of a double feature that the first episode of 2023 will also be Christmas themed. So stay tuned because in two weeks' time, we will be joined by the lovely Carson Timar of Clappercast to talk about Eyes Wide Shut, the Stanley Kubrick film, and Traum Novelle, a.k.a. Dream Story, by August Schnitzler, which is based on it. And then... Which, yeah, that was a panda torrent. I mean, <coughs> legally. Uh, to find it in my local bookshop. And <laughs> Still more than my local bookshop, Zlib, shutting down. It's the first library. Can't believe it. Uh, and also, of course, at the beginning of 2023, we will be opening this new season of Death by Adaptation. We're talking about Die Hard. So oh, stay yeah. tuned for that as well. Lots of lovely, lovely stuff coming your way. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Yuan, for hosting this one. We hope you all had a fabulous time, and we hope you enjoy coming back for more. Bye-bye. You'd better. <laughs> oh, bye as well, also, yes. <laughs>